Welcome to the Bethel Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Chris Valentin. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit Bethel.com. Well, let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for the speaker. <laughs> we pray you bless the speaker today. Come on, this is all for you. <laughs> and Lord, we pray that you would open our ears and our, our hearts, our eyes, our spirits. And Lord, may, may you prepare us for the wonderful days ahead. Amen. <clears throat> um, about four months ago, I uh, was sharing a series. I think I did a, part, a two-part or three-part series on the, on the Malachi verse about fathers returning home. And uh, I'm going to just share a little bit of that uh, this morning as a, just a recount, recounting the story just to kind of take you where I'm going, because this morning I want to talk about um, preparing for reentry. And um, in on um, about four months ago, we were in a prayer meeting. We have a prayer meeting. By the way, you're invited to it. Uh, it's at eight o'clock on Thursday mornings, and we pray from eight to nine. And we just pray for the government. We just pray for our city, for our state, for our nation. And we were praying on uh, on that Thursday morning. And I began to have a vision. Maybe you have heard this because I've shared it twice in two other messages. I began to have this intense vision of stadiums filling with men. And, uh, I, and I, I, I just began to envision men were just, you know how kind of strange visions are. I saw streets just filling, highways just filling with men. They were all walking towards these stadiums. And, and, and then in the stadium, I saw my son, Jason, was in the stadium and it was just packed with men, and he was teaching them how to be fathers, how to be husbands. He was teaching them. He was giving them the rite of passage, and it was it was really intense. It lasted for several minutes, probably maybe four or five minutes, and uh, the, and it was so intense and it was so so powerful that I, I wanted to catch the intensity. So I, I took out my phone and I began to text Jason about the vision as I was having it. I, I just wanted to capture the intensity while I was having it. So I'm having this vision of in, you're, you're in a stadium and, and, and men are just filling the stadium and you're, you're teaching men how to be men. And I just began to pour out my heart and text. And Jason's not a good texter. He doesn't text back. Usually, I, I, I have to remind myself, he loves me sometimes. But he immediately texts right back and said, Dad, I had that vision five months ago. That I was in a stadium and men were just filling the stadium in. And, uh, and so we, we just began to exchange ideas and, and I, I was reminded of Malachi and he said, Malachi chapter four, verse five says, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He's going to restore the hearts of fathers to children and the hearts of children to fathers. And I, I began to realize that, that Malachi envisioned a season when Fathers would be alive, but not home. And anyway, it, that became a theme for a few weeks. And I, I didn't understand what was really happening. But, you know, sometimes like as a, as, as a, as a preacher, you, you sometimes have something that is for a Sunday or for a, a time. But I didn't realize is that, that this wasn't just about a message for a weekend or a message to a certain group of people. This is, this is, this is like an epoch season. And, and I began to write a blog about it, and the blog turned into a book, and I, I started writing about it, I started researching, like, wow, does anybody else feeling this? Like, I began to, you know, get on the internet, and like, is anybody else feeling this? Like, 
this feels so intense. It feels like everybody should know this. And I started doing uh, some research. And as I said, this is the most fatherless generation in American history in which our fathers are alive, but not home. And I started doing a little bit of statistical study. I was so shocked by the statistics. I literally, I'm sure you've had this experience before where you have a revelation about something and you're like, why isn't everyone talking about this? And it was like that. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm reading the Malachi verse. I'm feeling this, the Lord like calling men home. I feel like it's going to be like a migration, like almost like the Jesus movement. Some of us are old enough in here to remember that. We're hippies, people who society said, if God, God can't touch those people for sure. And those hippies began to get saved. And they began to come to the most restrictive places on the planet, which in those days was the church. And like hippies coming to church, like they haven't showered in months and they come to this church with no shoes on. And you know, to people wearing three piece suits and it's like, how was that happening? Like God was just, sorry, me yelling. God was just spontaneously touching hippies. And they were getting saved and healed and delivered. They were getting set free from drugs, immediate healings. I mean, I was a product of, I didn't get set free from drugs. I'm still taking them, but <laughs> right now I have to confess I'm on, I'm on ibuprofen, but, <clears throat> but I mean, they just started to migrate to churches and, uh, you know, there's a crazy story about uh, Chuck Smith's church in Calvary Chapel was one of the, one of those churches, you know, a very kind of, if you will, kind of strict church. And the hippies began to fill this church up and a famous story. And, and uh, it got the, there were so many hippies, they wouldn't wear shoes, they hadn't taken baths. And they, they called the, uh, the board, the board of that church at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, called a, uh, a, a uh, emergency board meeting. And they told Chuck Smith, like, these hippies are ruining our carpet. They're destroying our, 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 our facility. And there's a famous story about Chuck standing up in the board meeting and slamming his hand down on the desk and said, then rip out the carpet and turned around and walked out of the board meeting. It's like, and, and I believe it's going to be like that. I believe that God is going to do that same thing like birds migrate home in the, in the, you know, south in the winter. Like, I believe that God's going to put the spirit of God is going to be in. It'll feel like it happened overnight. It'll probably be over a period of a few years, but that God's going to begin to touch men who are, have never been home or haven't been home in 10 years and, and sons and daughters and even mothers who are prodigal wayward. And they're suddenly going to be like, I need to go home. They don't even know why. Like, not even a logical thought. Like, I just need to go home. I, uh, I started doing the statistical study. Sorry, I got away from it. And here's, here's just a few, just to, just to get you, just to get, create urgency. Like, how bad is this? Like, if this was a disease, it'd be a pandemic. In 1950, less than 5% of all children in America were born out of wedlock. By 2017, that number rose by 1,700%. Today, more than 51% of all children in America are born out of wedlock. It means there's more children being born without a daddy than with the daddy today. Like, is that freaking alarming or what? Does that shock you? Like, I'm looking at the statistics, and I'm like, how come people aren't talking about this? 
What are the what are the side effects of fatherlessness? Now I know that we have a lot of single mothers here. I was raised by a, a single mom most of my life, over half of my life. So I, I have great I have great um, compassion for single moms. But let me just tell you what happens when you take fathers out of a home. Ninety percent of all prisoners are men, and seventy five percent of those inmates grew up without a dad. I don't even know if you just got what I said. 75% of every prisoner in America grew up without a dad. 63% of all youth suicides are from fatherless homes. It means you're five times more likely to attempt suicide if you don't have a dad at home. Is that shocking or what? 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. That's 30, you're 32 times more likely to run away from home if you don't have a dad. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. You're 20 times more likely to have a behavior disorder if you don't have a dad in the home. 80% of all rapists are from fatherless homes. It's 14 times more likely to commit rape if you don't have a dad. Are you hearing me? I mean, society's telling us, oh, you can have two daddies or two mommies. It doesn't matter. The genderless society, now our school system's teaching, you know, you know that the California just passed genderless curriculum? In 2019, they just put it in the school system this year. In other words, you can't use the terms him or her anymore. You must say they. Yes, it's already passed and it's already in our school system. You know why? Because they're trying to... Pr- trying to prove to our children, they're trying to teach our children that you don't need a dad and a mom. You can have two dads and two moms, or just a mom and just a dad. It doesn't matter. And I'm telling you, it does matter. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. That's nine times the average. And a statistic I don't have down here, but I just got recently from, uh, from one, of our, uh, one of our state senators is that they just are finishing right now. The statistics aren't all done. But on shooters, you know, those shooters we've been having for the last 15 years, shooting up Combine High School and all of these places, and what, what the early statistics show, that almost all the shooters either were fatherless or folly disconnected. Yeah. Like, you want to know what's killing kids? And I don't want to say it isn't guns, or not. I don't even want to get involved in the political thing. But I can tell you what it is for sure. It is fatherless kids. So the million dollar question is, how does a generation raised in a proverbial orphanage migrate and successfully create healthy families for the first time in three decades? If that's the question. That's the question. Because like you complain all day long. But what are you going to do when God starts sending people home? So that question was pressing on me and August 20th, I was leading prayer. You may have been here. It was on a Sunday morning. And Bill turned to me and said, lead prayer this morning. So I was like, okay. So I, I just knelt at my chair, just said, like, Lord, do you have something you want us to pray about? I mean, you can always just pray, but is there any kind of particular thing you want us to pray about? And I had this phrase run through my mind, prepare for reentry. Prepare for reentry. I wasn't thinking about all this stuff. I was just prepare for reentry. I'm like, what does that mean, prepare for reentry? I can't get up and say, prepare for reentry. Like, like, what does that mean? The king is coming, you know. Bill's coming home. I'm like, what, what does that mean? 
So I was doing, doing, you know, what you'd probably do. I was like, okay, I can't just say prepare for reentry. So as I was just kneeling, I'm like, prepare for reentry. What does that mean? What does that mean? And I got like three minutes to have something to say. And, and, and suddenly I remembered the prodigal son story. Prepare for reentry. Prepare for reentry. And I, I want to read you. This is quite long. It's about seven minutes long. I started writing this out the, uh, a few days later. And that's kind of becoming a blog and a book. And I, I, could, I could share it all with you, but I, I think it's, it's a little bit more boring to read it. But I'm going to do it anyway. So I stood there trying to understand the divine context of this apparent prophetic proclamation. Abruptly, the prodigal son story began to play in my head like a short film or a divine documentary. The tale is familiar to most of us. A farmer has two sons, of which the younger of them, the prodigal, is wayward, rebellious, and worldly. He decides to exit his father's house with his supposed inheritance. He parties it up with prostitutes and pimps, and soon he's stone broke. Half starving to death, the kid winds up working at a pig farm slopping hogs. It's actually quite ironic that he's stuck at a pig farm, as Jews in those days weren't supposed to eat pork. It was unclean. So the place became a prophetic monument to the boy's misery, a son in rebellion, living an unclean life, feeding unclean animals, and all because he entertained unclean thoughts in his very clean father's house. (laughs) In the midst of his misery, he has an epiphany. What the heck am I doing at the pig palace when I could be at my father's farm? So he comes to himself and heads home. This is where the story gets really good. His dad has prepared for his son's reentry because he's been living in hopeful observation. Furthermore, the father understands that shame could derail the boy's reunion. And seeing his son a long way off, he runs out to greet him. Throwing his strong arms around his son, he begins kissing him. And the boy, riddled with disgrace and wallowing in humiliation, spills his guts. Father, I've sinned against heaven. And in your sight, I'm no longer to be worthy to call your son. But his father has envisioned his reentry and rehearsed his reunion a million times in his imagination. And the father, his father, in utter exhilaration, shouts to his servants, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put... And, and, and bring the, and put the rest, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead, and he's come to life, and he was lost, and he's been found. What's obscure but powerful here is that his, is the father's influence over the environment's mindset concerning their son's reentry. First of all, he dictates the narrative of his son's return. It's time to celebrate. You might be thinking, what? This rebellious punk wasted his father's wealth on loose living and drugged the family's name through the pig trough. He trashed his relationship with God in favor of wild women and drunken parties. And now the kid runs out of cash, so he wants to drag his sorry butt home. No way. But his father won't tolerate this kind of thinking. Instead, the father requires the community to participate in his son's restoration. Put the robe on his back and the sandals on his feet and the ring on his finger. The father didn't restore him. He orchestrated his restoration so that the entire community reestablished his nobility, the robe, his purity, the sandals, and his authority, the ring. Then the father shouts, hey guys, kill the fattened calf I've been raising with this, for this special occasion. Let's get the party started. This is such an important step because the son is not left to try and work out his relationship with his family, his co-workers, his peer group, and his community. 
the father has established the attitude of reemergence for his son so that there's no punishment. There's no cold shoulder. There's no confrontation or rebuke. Just a big party with music, eating, dancing, and drinking. That's in the Bible there. In case you didn't know, that wasn't just in the blog. That was in the Bible. I just thought I'd... Some of you were like, not the drinking. It's like the drinking. The dancing. Bill used to say that, that Christ, the word Christian and the word dance didn't go together. But there it is right there in the prodigal son story. The servants in the community embrace the father's mindset, but the father has an older son who isn't happy about the father's attitude towards his brother's reentry. The older brother separated from the family and drowning his poverty mentality and hard work and self-righteousness. Here's the people partying in his field of frustration and orders his servants to tell him what's going on. Your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound, the servant replies. Live it, the pretentious elder brother refuses to join the celebration. But the wise father, true to his nature and un- unafraid of confrontations, journey out, journeys out again. This time to meet the older brother, the older son, in the field, imploring him to join the festivities. He answered him, <clears throat> He answered him, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected one of your commands. You've never even given me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The elder brother's reply is telling, did you notice his description of the prodigal son? This son of yours, not this brother of mine. His bitterness has detached and disconnected him from thinking like a, fam- like a member of the family. But the wise father reassures his son of his place in his heart. And he says to him, son, You have always been with me in all that I have. All that is mine is yours. In other words, your brother's restoration doesn't in any way diminish your place with me. I gave your brother the fattened calf, but you own the farm. Check out the climax of the father's salutation. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and he was lost and has been found did you catch that this brother of yours his dad just took his wayward son and reconnected him to the elder brother the implication is that you son also have responsibility for your brother's reentry because he is part of the family the truth is that it's so easy to be critical of something that you don't have to participate in yet owning the problem is half of the solution So what can we learn from the prodigal's pilgrimage that will help us prepare for this epic reconciliation of families? First of all, we must embrace the father's faith for reconciliation, which is demonstrated by his expectation of his son's return. He was able to meet him while he's still a long ways off from home because he was watching in earnest expectation. I think it's important to point out here that the father had faith for his son's return, his repentance, his change of heart. He wasn't guided by unsanctified mercy, accepting his son's sinful lifestyle to woo the boy homeward. And his son respected his father's nobility and understood that he couldn't bring his immoral lifestyle back to the father's farm, knowing that prostitutes and pigs were unwelcome there. No, instead, there was an unspoken understanding in the story that he must acknowledge his sin and forsake his lifestyle of perversion in exchange for his father's normal virtues. Sometimes... Our love for people is not rooted in faith for their return. 
Instead, we fear, in fear, we undermine the process of repentance, circumventing the journey, circumventing the journey by renegotiating the terms of endearment. Metaphorically speaking, we turn the farm into a brothel and to entice the prodigal to return home because we reason that it's our holy standard that's keeping him away. Furthermore, we lack faith for the Holy Spirit's ability to convict them of their sin and we give them and give them grace that they need to change. Somehow in our zeal, we mistakenly believe that the goal of God is to get them back in the building. When in fact, God's goal is repentance, to change their way of thinking, to agree with the Father's noble lifestyle. The Apostle Paul said it best. Do not think lightly, light, lightly of the riches and kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance. Let me point out again that God's kindness leads to repentance, which is on to restoration. But re-entry without repentance isn't restoration. It's human sympathy, not God-ordained compassion. The wayward son's repentance is evidenced in his confession. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The confession of sin is paramount in the re-entry process because it's the catalyst for grace, which is the power to change. The Apostle John put it like this. If we say we have, not, we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The challenge is that you can't separate cleansing from unrighteousness from confession. Therefore, if we normalize sin, we refuse to admit that we are doing something wrong, we undermine grace, which is the supernatural ability to change. Amen. When we finished that prayer, as we actually, as we were praying, I began to have this thought that I thought was prophetic. I began to say to the congregation, maybe again, you were there. I began to say, I feel like we, some of you need to do a prophetic act. Like in my mind, the prodigal son's father, he saved the fattened calf. But what was he doing? He was preparing for a future reentry. He was feeding the calf. <laughs> he was like, don't touch that calf. I got a plan for that thing. And I said, some of you, some of you, like, you know, physical obedience brings spiritual release. Some of you have to do something profoundly prophetic. And it's going to be the catalyst that brings your, your father back, your son, your daughter, your mother. You get the idea. Maybe even your children. Maybe you haven't been able to have children. Maybe you've had several miscarriages. I said this that, that day. And, and maybe, and maybe you just, you just given up, but maybe you need to decorate the bedroom. Maybe you need to get a crib. I, I'm not saying just do it. I'm saying maybe God is requiring you to do this. <laughs> Maybe you need to cook your husband's favorite meal or at least get all the ingredients ready. You get the idea. It's like something profoundly prophetic that actually is a catalyst to turn that thing on. And as I began to say that, I was like, I was remembering 2 Kings 4.1. It's the story of the, this woman who's, uh, whose husband is one of the, the sons of the prophets. And she says to Elisha, my husband's dead and I have two kids and they're going to take them we have this debt and they're going to they're going to take my kids into slavery and Elisha says to her I love this story what do you have what do you have and her response is much like ours I got nothing except for a little oil in a jar all I got is a little oil in a jar how many know all you need is a little oil in a jar you getting this 
Guys, kids got two fishes and three loaves. Jesus like, that's all we need. Just bring what you have. And the, and the prophet Elisha says to her, bring me the oil and go get some vessels. Like, it, the word there isn't jars. It's like barrels. <laughs> go get stuff that holds oil. <laughs> and they go out in the neighborhood. You know the story probably. They go out and they get all these jars, these, I don't know. I can just imagine whatever holds oil. <laughs> And they, and they bring them, and Elisha says, let's go in the bedroom. They go in the bedroom, and they begin to pour this little oil, and it fills every single container. And the, and the oil stops, and he goes, you, do you have any more containers? And she says, no, that's all we have. And the oil poured until the containers were all full. And then he says to the, the lady, now go sell the oil and pay off your debt. Uh, what's the, what, what point are you making there, Valentin? The point I'm making is the prophet required her to gather jars for oil she didn't have. Hello, are you getting this? Her physical obedience, gathering the jars, inspired a spiritual release to create a miracle of multiplying the oil. The prodigal father was raising a fattened calf. It wasn't a skinny calf. It wasn't a regular calf. He was feeding a calf. Come on, help me. You got to help me preach a little bit. I've been sick for a week. He is feeding the freaking calf. Are you with me? He was saving it. He was watching in earnest expectation and observation. He knew his son would come home. He had to wait for his son to actually repent, turn around. But he's not waiting for him to get home. He runs out in the field to meet him. And he's already got the calf. You get the idea. He has a prophetic act that's been going on. Who knows? A week, a month, six months, a year. We don't know. But he's doing something. He's not just passively like, oh, I feel so powerless. A little side note, we finished the prayer that morning about the re-entry. We're praying for re-entry. I think we do it, I think I was in two services, we did it twice. I get home, I'm on my way home, and my, my text message, I get a text message from one of my grandsons, who's not really been walking with the Lord. Not, not a bad kid, just not walking with the Lord. And he sends me this message, Papa, I'm not doing good. Papa, I need help. And he's kind of one of my quiet grandsons. I'm like, okay, cool, he's 18. So can we, have, can, we, can we have lunch? I'm like, yeah, sure. So the next day we have lunch, and he's telling me, I'm just not doing good. I just don't know what to do. And, and he moved here to go to Shasta College. I said, well, why don't you go to school ministry? And I expected him to say, that's the one place I'm not going to. But like the hippies, he goes, okay, if you think I should go, I'll go. You know, he wouldn't have got in except for his grandfather owns the school. You know what I'm saying? So, I don't own the school. You know what I mean? So, you know, so so he gets in, and you know, I'm I'm a little nervous. You know, it's like he wouldn't have qualified. So I'm like, okay, okay, this is gonna. I hope this is good. And and so you know, a couple days go by, and I'm like, how's it going? He's like, oh, it's good. I'm like, okay, oh Jesus, please do something. You know. So I think it was like day three or four, I don't remember, but it was in that first week. He texts me, he goes, Papa, something weird happened to me. So I write, good, weird, or bad, weird? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> so, so anyway, he comes over and I said, what, what's going on, dude? And he's like, well, we were worshiping. I'm like, that's already good, weird right there. You were worshiping, like, we were worshiping. I'm like, how could that, how? Hey, listen, it had to be good, weird. And so he goes, and all of a sudden, he goes, I, I was sitting in my chair, and all of a sudden I started to shake. And I said, oh, yeah? He said, yeah, shake, uncontrollably shaking. I'm like, oh, 
I'm thinking, good weird right off, right? And I said, and he goes, I tried to stop. I said, he said to himself, I, I'm doing this. And he couldn't stop. And then he said, I started laughing. And he said, I started laughing. And then I said to myself, I'm trying to laugh. And then he said, I tried to stop laughing. I couldn't start laughing. Then he said, I tried to get up and I was stuck to my chair and I couldn't get up. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, that's good weird. And he said, oh yeah, that's good weird. I guess, yeah. So no, another week went by or so, something like a week. And he texts me again. And he says, uh, Papa, something strange happened. Can I talk to you? I said, sure. And like, a minute later, he's in my driveway. I'm like, oh, he was waiting outside the fence. What's going on, bro? He's like, something weird happened. I said, yeah. I said, good weird or bad weird? Said, well, I don't know. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, the, our RGP, our revival group leader said, hey, if anybody wants to stay over, we can stay over and worship. And he said, so we all stayed over and worship. I'm like, already? We're good. We're good already. <laughs> can only get better. And he goes, and uh, then I asked, we were worshiping. And, and he said, and I kind of went into this like I was asleep, but I was awake. And he said, I thought like 10 minutes passed, but then I opened my eyes and everybody was gone. And I realized two hours had passed. So he said, there was a, young, there was a lady there, uh, one of my student friends, and she said, can I pray for you? And he said, well, I guess so. So he said, she prayed for me and boom, I went down on the ground. Then I tried to get up and I was stuck to the ground. And he said, something went like, his eyes are this big while he's telling me, right? This just happened. Like he went from there, drove home, drove to my house. So he goes, I'm on the floor, and all of a sudden something goes, rip! And he goes like this, rip! And, it, and, and something ripped my chest open. I said, really? He's, what happened? He said, I don't know. He said, bad stuff came out and good stuff went in. He said, I said, well, that's good weird. He goes, yeah, that's good weird. I said, how do you feel? He says, I feel great. Huh? Okay, Lord, more of that rip stuff. I mean, we're preaching, we're praying, bring home the prodigals, and my own grandson comes home three hours later. Amazing. What can we learn from the prodigal son story? Number one, the father had faith, obviously. He watched in hopes of observation. We got to keep faith on, dude. You know what I mean? We got to keep our faith on. We got to. Whatever situation, our kids, our, our husband, our wife, whatever, these people, we, we need to keep our faith on. We need to not give up. I, I think faith is kind of like this tractor beam. You cannot even want to do this. And you just like, I don't know what's happening. My grandmother's praying for me. I can't just need to serve Jesus, you know. <clears throat> I think the world would be a lot better place if we just put grandmas in cars and did drive-by spankings. But anyway... <laughs> How many had a grandmother praying for you? I don't, I don't know, man. You just, that's, that's death right there. Just give in. Number two, he waited for the heart of his son to turn around. I think we talked about it already. He didn't undermine the process of, of reconciliation by, by, um, I mean, of, of repentance. He, he let God work first. I don't know about you, but that's the hardest part sometimes. I mean, we've been involved in so many with our own, even our own kids. It's like so hard, like, okay, God, when do I run out in the field? 
I don't want to run all the way to the pig farm. Number three, and we talked about this one too, he dictated the mindset of reconciliation to the community so that the reentry was a family affair. I think this is so important because, you know, sometimes mom embraces son or, da- or dad embraces wayward son, you know, and she kind of protects them, right? It becomes like the teacher's pet, and the rest of the family goes, wait till mom's not around, you're dead. You know that attitude? Like, Yes, she's forgiven you, but you haven't even talked to us yet. I like that the father actually, he, he orchestrated the whole community like, okay, this is, what, this is why I'm thinking this. My son was dead, now he's alive. He was lost, he's now found. So he's given them a reason. Like, these are the reasons why we should wrap our arms around this boy. Are you with me? Number four, and this one is huge. The father visited the field twice wants to welcome his wayward son home, but here's the most powerful one to me, the second time to confront the attitude of his arrogant son. A wise, a wise father knows who to confront and who to forgive. You know, my favorite character in the Old Testament is King David. <laughs> uh, I don't know, he's just the man. It's just something about, he's just like gladiator Maximus. You know, killing lions and bears. You know, we grew up in the country. I just, I read that guy and I'm like, yeah, I want to be like that guy right there. And you know, he's the illegitimate son. Did you know that David was the illegitimate son? He writes in the Psalms, my, uh, he said, in, in sin I was brought forth. It's why his father didn't invite him to the inauguration because his, he didn't want the prophet to know that he had an illegitimate son. And so here he is, he's a pauper who becomes a king. It's just, it's just a beautiful story. I love King David, and he was obviously he, he gets he's the only man in the in the Bible that Jesus actually says a man after my own heart. But I have to say this about David: he is the terrible father. He has one successful son, and it's Solomon who wrote Proverbs. But he's actually a terrible father, and he his challenge is is that he doesn't confront his sons. There's, there's a story that depicts it so powerfully. It starts in 2 Samuel 13. I'll just tell you the story. So you can imagine by now David has like, I think like seven wives, right? And so he has children from all these wives, right? Daughters and sons. So they're, they got, they got brothers and half brothers and sisters and half sisters and you get the idea. And so he has a, a son named Ammon and a daughter named Tamar. They are, they are half brother and sister. And Ammon is just, he's, he's just, he's just taken by Tamar. He just, he just, he just can't get her out of his mind. And, and, and Tamar is like a virgin's virgin. She's like Miss Purity. She's like, I am not having sex with anyone until I'm married kind of a woman. She's like protecting her purity. And, and Ammon keeps trying to entice her. And finally, it doesn't work and, he ends up inter- interacting with his friend, and his friend gives him this plan. And so the plan is, and, and what happens is, is that Ammon pretends to be sick and says to King David, Oh, please send Tamar to me. I'm so sick. So Tamar comes in kind of to nurse him, to take care of him, and he rapes her. And after he rapes her, he hates her. Like, like 10 seconds after the rape is over, he can't stand her. And she says in her purity plan, 
like, I'm only going to have sex with my husband, so you need to marry me. Like, you have violated me. Marry me. And he says, get out of here. He's got servants, and, they, and she's screaming like, you violated me. You have to, you have to fix this. You can, and, he, and he literally drags her out of the room. And she rips her dress, and she walks through the town, and she's throwing dirt on her head. I mean, she's just had a complete nervous breakdown. And Absalom is her brother, her full brother. And Absalom sees her in the street, runs out to her, and like, what happened to you? And she explains to him that Ammon raped her, and he takes her into his house, and it says, and in shame she died. It, no, in shame, she lived in shame all the years of her life and, and, and died in Absalom's house. Absalom has a daughter a few years later and names her Tamar. You get what's going on? Justice is giving birth to injustice. Absalom's name means Abba Salam. My father, Abba, is peace. Absalom was born for peace. But David refuses to bring any kind of justice to the situation. It says that David was upset but did nothing. Absalom is so needs closure and justice that he finally kills Ammon. And he, he runs in exile to another country. It says that when David learned that Absalom, I'm sorry, that, that Ammon was killed, it says that he was relieved. You see any problem here at all yet? That he was relieved. Absalom lives in exile for, I don't know, several years, but he wants to go home. And Absalom keeps sending messages to his father, please let me come home, please let me come home. And finally David says, okay, you can come into the country, but you can't come into my city. And so he comes to his country, then through another, this is like a big drama, man. This should be like a series on TV. So he comes home, and finally David says, okay, you can come, you can come to the city. You can come to the city of David. And so he does. And, so, and David is Supreme Court judge and king. So the king in those days was also the Supreme Court judge. So David would daily have a court session for all the tough cases. And Absalom says that Absalom stood outside of David's courtroom, right outside the courtroom, for four years and said, you won't get justice through my father. You won't get justice through my father. You don't want my father to decide your case. And little by little, it says that Absalom won the heart of Israel. And ultimately, he runs his father out of Israel, and he becomes king. You know what Absalom's very first act of kingship is? He takes a tent, and he, he pitches it on the top of the castle. He calls all of Israel to come and watch, and he rapes all of David's concubines in front of Israel. What's his point? See how that felt, David? That's how it felt when you allowed my sister to be raped and you did nothing. And what's the point? Part of preparation for reentry is not just compassion. It's also confrontation. I said to John, uh, John Paul Jackson was at my house about 10 years ago before he passed. And I was telling, I had just discovered this in the Old Testament and I was, I was 
telling John Paul at dinner time at our house about the story. And John Paul said, yeah, I saw that a few years ago. I said, really? He goes, do you know why David did not, did not confront his sons? I said, no. He says, because Saul, King Saul, was his spiritual father. And Saul tried to kill David. He used his, his, his authority to abuse him. So David reacted to how he was raised and did the opposite. I want to tell you that I feel like God is calling the prodigal fathers and sons and daughters and mothers home. But I want to tell you that like the Jesus movement, it's important for us to prepare for re-entry. It's important for us to not just be the prodigal father welcoming the sons home, but we also need to be the prodigal father who goes out again into the field and goes, what are you doing? How many know the prodigal father is not going to let the elder son ruin the festival? Come here, change your attitude. Listen, your brother's blessing is taking anything from you. Yes, I gave him the fattened calf. You own the freaking farm. Get to the party. Are you with me? There's something about, are you with me? There's something about the, having the attitude of the prodigal father that prepares us for reentry. From, from, from raising the fattened calf, so to speak, the prophetic act, to going out the second time in the field and say, no, no, we're doing this as a family. This is not the leader's place. This is not the elder's place. We're, this is a family re- affair, and you are not going to stand out in the field and throw rocks at the re- at your brother's reentry. You're going to come in. He is not my son. He is your brother. Get your butt over here and participate in the festival. Are you with me? I want us to pray. Would you stand? And those who are watching by Bethel TV, can you stand with us right now, if you would, wherever you're at? Would you put your hand on your heart? I just have a very simple prayer that we're to pray this morning, I believe. And I want you to pray this prayer. Father, prepare my heart for all the re-entries that will happen over the next 20 years. Let me be like the prodigal father who understood when to extend compassion and when to confront the sons. Give me wisdom on the re-entry of millions of people who will be coming home over the next two decades. And let our house be a house of celebration, a house of restoration, a house of forgiveness, and a house of where everyone is welcome. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. This weekly podcast is being translated into multiple languages. Please visit podcasts.ibethel.org.